Let's begin with session two, the church's protection. We've gone over the church's foundation. We've talked about the church's authority, elder-led congregationalism. We've talked about the church's membership, making membership meaningful. And now we want to talk about the church's protection. If you were to ask me, Steve, when you think about a healthy church, what's the very first thing that comes to mind? Well, I would say the very first thing that comes to mind when I think about a healthy church is a church that practices church discipline. Now, that may not be the most important thing, but it's still the first thing that comes to mind because of what it represents. Now, let me be clear here. There are two ways that we can understand discipline. You have what's called formative discipline, which are actions that forms and, and shapes a person. And then you have corrective discipline, actions that correct a person's bad behavior. Now, back in Toronto, I have two little girls at home. And my oldest just turned four two weeks ago or something like that. It's a, she's a sweet little girl that I love to death. And uh, it's a very interesting season in, um, in, in life for my wife and I because she's getting ready for school next fall, uh, which means that there are things that I want to do over the summer in order to better prepare her to go to school. I want to teach her how to better dress herself and how to better clean up after herself. I want to teach her some very basic stuff on math and um, recognition of letters and words. All that kind of stuff can fall under the category of formative discipline, forming her mind and her actions to grow in maturity. But there's another side to discipline. When my daughter disobeys me and runs across a busy Toronto parking lot where there are a lot of moving cars, or when she takes a toy from her little sister, or if she throws a massive fit because we have to leave the park, that requires a form of corrective discipline, responding to a bad behavior, confronting it and correcting it. So just for the sake of clarity, when we talk about church discipline, we're not talking about formative discipline, we're talking about corrective discipline. And here's the reason why I think corrective church discipline is a defining mark of a healthy church, because it's one of the hardest things to do. It's so hard that many churches avoid the issue, make compromises, or don't practice it at all, and, and the result of that could be very lethal. Parents, you know this, to correct your own child is one thing, but to correct your brother and sister in Christ is an entirely different thing. I'm not sure how you guys are uh, up here in northern Alberta, but generally speaking, Canadians are known to veer away from confrontation. Right? You can just ask some of our American counterparts, our American friends about that. They, they love to make fun of us because Canadians, as Canadians, we don't like addressing people's bad behaviors. We don't like confronting people on their wrongdoings. And let me tell you this, it's not that different in the life of the church. It's incredibly hard to call people out on their sin. When you do that, there's the potential of making a seriously awkward situation. You might ruffle some feathers. You're likely going to offend the person even though you're right. So there's nothing fun or easy about practicing church discipline, which begs the question, should we do it? 
And if so, how? And that's how I want to tackle this second session, or I guess it's the fourth one. First, talk about the why of church discipline, and then talk about the how of church discipline. So why to practice church discipline? Let me give you four reasons. The very first one is the Bible commands it. Remember, a word-centered ministry. This has to be, first and foremost, the reason why we practice church discipline. A healthy church is a church that believes in the authority of the Bible and seeks to obey no matter what. Again, that's what Tim was talking about yesterday. This is a word-centered ministry. And there are a number of passages in the New Testament that call us to practice corrective church discipline. Now, I'll elaborate on some of these a little later um, in other parts of the lesson, but here are four passages for you to consider. The very first one is Second Thessalonians 3, verses 14 to 15. And in that part of Paul's letter to the church um, in Thessalonica, he talks about how to deal with a lazy person. When you have an idle or lazy person who is unwilling to work even though he is able to work, Paul instructs the church to essentially ignore him as a way of rebuking him of his sin. But he specifically says there right at the end, do not consider him as an enemy but as a brother. A brother that needs correction. A Christian that needs correction. We don't want to be the kind of people that enable that sort of sin, the sin of laziness. Second Thessalonians, then we have Titus chapter 3, verse 10 to 11, instructions on how to deal with a divisive person. You might be familiar with the text, warn him once, then warn him twice, and then have nothing more to do with such a person because he is warped and self-condemned. When I teach our new members class, One thing I always make sure to communicate is that we require substantial agreement to what we believe in as a church. And the reason for that is because big disagreements become a breeding ground for division. So I tell the class, for the sake of your own soul, because you don't want to be the kind of divisive person in the church, if you're going to fight against us and what we believe in and what we're teaching, it's better for you to go to another church and fully support that church Be united with that church rather than be in this church where you might stir up division. Titus 3, then we have 1 Corinthians 5. There's some gross sexual sin in the church and Paul instructs the Christians to immediately confront this man and remove him from the membership of the church. Then we have Matthew chapter 18, which is probably the most important text on church discipline. But again, a little more on that later on in the lesson. So there's a brief snapshot of what the Bible says. Four clear passages that talk about corrective church discipline. So if we claim to be under the authority of the scriptures, then to not practice formal church discipline is to be in direct conflict with God and his word. That's the first reason why we need to practice church discipline, because the Bible commands it. Secondly, we practice church discipline because It's an act of love. God himself is the greatest example of this, right? I'm going to read for you Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 to 11. Just just listen to how God talks about discipline. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines, listen to this, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines, that's the Father, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later... It yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Did you catch who the Lord disciplines? God disciplines the one he loves. He doesn't discipline the one he hates. He disciplines the one he loves. His discipline is an act of fatherhood. He does it because he is our heavenly father. To not be disciplined by God is evidence of being an illegitimate child. And then lastly, God disciplines his children for their good, that they might grow in holiness and in righteousness. If my daughter runs across the busy Toronto parking lot where a lot of fast-moving cars are present, and I don't do anything to correct that, I am not truly loving my daughter because I'm communicating that I don't really care about her her safety and her well-being. But it's because I love her to death that I'll discipline her and correct her bad behavior, even if she doesn't like it in the moment, because that's how I can care for her well-being and her safety. The evidence of God's love, or any father's love, is not the lack of discipline, but the presence of it. Not the lack of discipline, but the presence of it. No one says, my dad loved me so much that he never disciplined me. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore imitate God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christians, we're to imitate our heavenly father and love others the way that he has loved us. And God rebukes us of our sin. He disciplines us, and that means we ought to rebuke, and s- rebuke one another and exercise church discipline because it reflects God's love towards us. I can't imagine my life and where I would be without the faithful discipline of my Heavenly Father. I grew up without a father who cared much. He wasn't present. He wasn't a part of my life. He never disciplined me. He never taught me. But when I became a Christian, the Lord confronted my sin and rebuked me. And I know I still have a long way to go. And I'm not the man that I want to be. I'm not who I ought to be. I'm not who I should be. But by the grace of God, I'm not who I used to be. And I thank God for his loving discipline in my life. I thank him that he doesn't let me get away with my deep-rooted sins. He patiently instructs me, corrects me, and cares for me of all of my foolishness and of all of my sinfulness. He corrects me and disciplines me, and I know that that's his love for me. We should practice church discipline because it is an act of love to one another. 
The very third thing is that it protects the church. Let's circle back to 1 Corinthians 5. If you're unfamiliar with the context, it's being reported to Paul that there, again, is some gross sexual sin in the life of the church. So gross that he said not even the pagans would tolerate this kind of sin. The situation is that a man is sleeping with his father's wife. He's committing incest. And the Christians have basically turned a blind eye to this whole ordeal. So Paul instructs them, no, 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 no. Let this man be removed from among you. It's very clear. Immediately remove him from the membership of the church. And then he gives the reason why such a person must be removed. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Now, I'm not much of a baker, but I understand this much, that when you use leaven to make bread, it quickly spreads throughout the whole lump. It has this contagious, proliferating effect that touches every part of the dough. And in the same way, he's saying that this kind of heinous sin, one that even the pagans wouldn't tolerate, if you allow that to exist in the life of the church unchecked, unconfronted, then it will spread and contaminate the church if you don't deal with it decisively. Now, I want to be careful here because, of course, Every believer in the church struggles with sin on a daily basis. But that doesn't mean that we should all get kicked out of the church. Because if we practice church discipline that way, then we wouldn't really have a church at all. This kind of formal church discipline is for those who claim they're Christians while continuing in unrepentant sin. The person who must be removed from the church is the kind of person who commits something like incest and believes that it's okay and it's not a problem. And that person must be removed because he or she becomes a danger to the whole church. Paul understands this very clearly. He understands the nature of sin. He knows that when sin isn't dealt with in the life of the church, it will spread and negatively affect the rest of the church. So for the sake of protecting the church, we must be committed to practicing church discipline. First, the Bible commands it. Secondly, it's an act of love. Third, it protects the church. And lastly, it's fundamental to our gospel witness to a sinful world. The church's big task is to protect the who and the what of the gospel. What is a gospel profession and who is a gospel professor? And the way the church conducts itself in the world reflects the one they claim to follow. Being a witness for Jesus in this world isn't done with uh, the words that we speak. It's also done through our example. It's not just what we say, but how we live. Do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? You are the what? Light of the world. City set on a hill. And then he tells us, let our light shine before others that the world would see our light, which is the good works, and will give glory to God, the Father. See, the church cannot fulfill its mission of being light in the world if it allows members to participate in darkness. Uh, In my previous church, 
we had someone who stopped attending our church for a long time. And for two years, we tried reaching out. And at first, it was successful. Um, she would talk to us. She would tell us all of her reasons why she couldn't come to church, all of these excuses. Uh, but eventually, she started rejecting our calls and not responding to our emails or any kind of initiation to establish communication. And this took us two years, but after two years, the elders recommended to the membership that we remove this individual from membership, excommunicate her, because she was habitually absent for the last two years, and then we later found out on social media that she was living a very sinful life. And to be honest, when the elders brought that forward, some people didn't like the idea. They thought it was a little harsh. And then one sister stood up and rightly shared that as a church, we are representing Jesus Christ. It's his reputation that we bear as the members of this church. So to keep a person in our membership, someone who hasn't been around for the last two years, who is living, clearly living a sinful life, would be to testify that we believe she's a Christian and that that kind of lifestyle is okay. A lifestyle that doesn't honor the name of Christ. We faced opposition that day. It's hard, but we need to be willing to call our people out of their sin and call them to repentance. And if they harden their heart and continue in their sin, then down the road, we need to be willing to remove them from the church's membership. It's worth asking this question. How can the church call unbelievers to repentance if it's unwilling to call its own members to repentance over sin? We need to practice what we preach. And if the church is serious about witnessing to the world, it must be serious about practicing church discipline. Because it's through discipline that we proclaim to the world that God takes sin seriously and holiness does matter. He doesn't want his people to be living sinful lives while being unchanged and they call themselves Christians. He calls us to holiness. Be holy as I am holy. So that's the why question. Why do we practice church discipline? Because the Bible commands it. Because it's an act of love. Because it protects the church. And because it's fundamental to our gospel witness. Next, I want to tackle the how question. How to practice church discipline. Now, when a brother sins against you, we believe that there are ultimately two options that you have. The very first one is to have a love that covers a multitude of sins, a love that's willing to put, put, put a cover over that sin. And you can have a love that covers a multitude of sin. That means absorbing the offense because you can take it and you understand that maybe this friend is a young Christian who hasn't figured it all out yet. But if the offense is of such nature that it disrupts the relationship with that person, your relationship with that person, things like you can't stop thinking about it, it keeps you up at night, or you feel offended and, and, and the way you're thinking about him, talking about her or uh, treating that person is, is not good. If, if, if the relationship is disrupted, then the second option is to practice corrective church discipline. Okay, do we understand that? There are two options. You can have a love that covers a multitude of sins. Or if you can't bear the, the, the offense, 
If it's causing relational disruption, then you practice church discipline. Now, we need to understand that in a life of a healthy church, corrective discipline probably happens all the time. But when it comes to actually removing someone from the membership of the church, excommunicating them, really that's just the final step of an entire process of church discipline. Okay, so let's talk about how that works. Now, as I said before, Matthew chapter 18, uh, verses 15 to 20, is one of the most important and formative texts when it comes to the practice of corrective church discipline in the life of the local church. I'm going to read this slowly for you again, okay? Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So if we break this passage down, what we find are four steps or four stages in Matthew 18 to practice church discipline. The very first one is a private confrontation. Let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Okay, notice here that Jesus is not speaking to the offender. He is speaking to the offended. If you've been sinned against, the very first step is for you to go and speak to that individual. Now, Jesus is very careful in his choice of words, so we need to pay attention to the details here. He specifically says, between you and him, what? Alone. Right? Now, as pastors, we often get people in our church coming up to us and telling us, this person did this, and that person did that. And one of the first things we ask is, well, did you go and talk to that person? Did you go address this sin to that person? Because if you haven't, then you need to stop this conversation right now with me and go speak to that person directly. Don't be public about it. Don't tell everyone in the church. Guard that person's honor and reputation insofar as that is possible and first have a private discussion. Hopefully, this is what is happening all the time when sin is committed in the life of the church. So that's the very first step, a private confrontation. Now, what happens if the Christian doesn't repent? You execute at stage one, you talk to that person alone, the person doesn't repent, then you move on to stage two, or step two, which is a semi-private confrontation. Jesus continues, but if he does not listen to stage one, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Stage one doesn't work, then you take it up a notch. Not ten notches, a notch. You move from a private confrontation to a semi-private confrontation. Bring someone else along with you who can testify against this person's sin so that the charge may be established by more than just one person. 
You see, uh, it's not just Steve Kim saying this. It's not just Steve Kim recognizing this sin in your life. Tim Challey sees it too, and both of us are telling you, you need to repent of your sin. But what happens if the Christian still doesn't repent after stage two? Then you move from a semi-private confrontation to a public confrontation. This is what we call stage three. Jesus continues, if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three witnesses, tell it to the church. So far in this process, you're working hard to keep the person's sin a private matter. It doesn't need to be public. It doesn't need to be brought up at a member's meeting. You're trying to keep it as private as possible. But if that person refuses to listen even to two or three witnesses, if he refuses, if she refuses to repent after stage two, then it's time to take it up a notch and you tell it to the church. Now, churches can do this very differently. Let me just explain to you how we do it at Grace Fellowship Church. Again, we call this stage three of church discipline. When we talk, when we talk to our members, we tell them we're moving to stage three. They know exactly this is when we're telling it to the church. Now, first of all, this isn't something that we will deal with on a Sunday morning where we have visitors and non-members attending. As elders, we'll bring this up at our next members meeting with a well-prepared explanation of what's going on in the situation. We'll explicitly state this is stage three of church discipline, and we'll explain how stage one and stage two have happened and how it, how it hasn't worked, and it's time now for the church to step in. Now, in our church, we have exactly 181 members. It wouldn't make sense for 181 people to all try talking to this one person. It, it might be more possible in a smaller church, but as you start to grow into a bigger church, uh, it's 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 a less sufficient way of doing it. So what we do is we ask 10 volunteers to go and, and speak to this unrepentant brother or sister as representatives of the church as a whole and call them to repentance. Now let me add just one thing at this point. It takes us months, sometimes upwards to two years to get to stage three. This isn't something that should happen in just three days or, or even three weeks. Sometimes, and you know this, if you take a very careful look at your own life, sometimes it takes a long time to, to see people deal with their own sin. And sometimes we need to have a deep level, actually all the time we need to have a deep level of patience, long-suffering, and understanding with our brothers and our sisters who are struggling with their own sin. Give a sinning brother or sister, lots of time to repent. When you get to stage three, you should have given it everything you have before in stage one and stage two. But if after a long period of time, they refuse to even listen to the church, then you, rem- then you move to stage four, which is remove from membership. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That, again, is to treat him as an unbeliever who needs to be saved, meaning removing that individual from membership and participating at the Lord's table, again, because the Lord's table communion is only for those who are in Christ. Now, in any stage of the church discipline process, your prayers and goals should be to see this person restored. What does Jesus say if if, if this person listens to you, if if this person listens to your rebuke? 
you have gained your brother. And that ought to be the goal. It's never about sinfully shunning the person forever. That's what Jehovah's Witnesses do when you get excommunicated from a Jehovah's Witness church. They, they will shun you forever. If you're a part of that Jehovah's Witness church, then you're not allowed to speak to that person who has been excommunicated. You just completely shun them from your life. But that fails to understand the, the point of church discipline. You know, at, at our last members meeting, one, as I was chairing that meeting, one of the, the members at the end asked me, uh, what happens if we excommunicate a person but sometime later, maybe months later, they, um, they, they come and they believe in the gospel and they want to become members of the church again genuinely. And I told them that is the best case scenario. That's what we want to see happen with everyone who is on the receiving end of corrective church discipline. We want to see them repent of their sin and trust in the good news of the gospel that Christ died for their sins and rose again. Sometimes, It takes removing a person from the membership of the church to help them acknowledge their sin and deal with the gravity and the weight of it. And if we can help an unrepentant brother or sister do that by removing them, excommunicating them from the church, that is one of the most loving things that we can do. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Four stages. Again, you have a private confrontation. That doesn't work. Stage two, semi-private confrontation. That doesn't work. Stage three, a public confrontation. That doesn't work. Remove from membership. The last thing I'll say is this. The process of church discipline, again, must be understood in the context of love. If you look at the wider context in Matthew 18, does anyone have their Bible open here? Matthew 18? Just take it out. Take a look. It's helpful to see this. If you look at Matthew 18, again, you're looking uh, at the church discipline passage there from verses 15 to 20. Somebody tell me what the passage before that is. parable of the lost sheep. What is Jesus talking about there? If, if uh, the, there's the shepherd who will leave the 99 in order to follow the what? The one. And what's happening with the one sheep? He's gone astray. Right? What is that shepherd doing? At, he, he's caring for the sheep. He's, he's going after the sheep. He knows that, that this one has gone astray and he is looking after the one who has gone astray. Uh, right after the church discipline passage, Peter asked, look at this, verse 21, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven, but what? Seventy-seven times. He's not doesn't literally mean 77 times. Now, now you can't forgive him on the 78th time. It's, it's, it's a way of emphasizing a point. You keep forgiving this brother if they are truly repentant. And then if they fall back to the same sin and they, they feel a sorrow over that sin and they repent, then you forgive that brother and you forgive that sister again and again and again and again. And I want you to notice that because the church discipline passage 
Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, is wedged right in the middle of that text that emphasizes patient love. A shepherd that is willing to leave the 99 to go after the one. Jesus commanding his disciples, forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. That is what church discipline is. It's how you love one another when sin occurs. Later, in um, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, slander, and malice and clamor, let all of that be put away. There's no room for bitterness in the life of the church. If church, if church discipline is, is being done out of a spirit of bitterness, then you are sinning. This is what church discipline is meant to do. It's meant to be done out of love as an act of love. So my dear friends, then, insofar as it is possible, have a love that covers a multitude of sins, a love that is willing to bear it, a love that is willing to absorb it, a love that bears, believes, hopes, and endures all things. But when the unity of your relationship is disrupted, I want you to have courage. Trust in the words and the process of Jesus Christ. You don't need a policy paper on how to deal with discipline. Matthew 18 is your biblical policy paper. You can lovingly confront a brother or sister with the aim of restoration and trust that Christ knows exactly what he's doing. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who will trust in your word and obey it. And sometimes that can seem awfully hard because we're anticipating an awful consequence to it. Awkward situations, offended people who will shout back at us or or things like that. And often the fear of man can govern us. And so I pray that we would walk with a healthy fear of the Lord, a fear of you, a deep reverence for what you call us to. And I pray, dear God, that through this kind of obedience and life that is worthy of the gospel, you would build a healthy church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.